Listener Production. In this episode of The Briefing, do you find it hard to commit to basically anything? Are you always keeping your options open? In this age of infinite browsing mode, we should pick a damn movie and see it all the way through. That's a graduation speech from a guy at Harvard, and it's been watched 32 million times. It's from an American writer called Pete Davis, and he's making the case for commitment in an age of infinite browsing. Our modern lives are full of options. It feels like we've got the whole world on our smartphones, but it can leave us paralysed. So in this episode, we speak to Pete Davis, the American author who explains the power of commitment. You actually build your identity through your commitments. You become what you choose to do. You become what you choose to commit to. You actually find yourself through your commitments. This is The Briefing. It is Wednesday, the 8th of December. Here are today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf. Hello, Mr Tilly. It's lovely to be back. The federal government is under pressure to follow the US in announcing a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics. If all the leaders stay away, it hopefully will be a reminder to the regime that the the behaviour they engage in is unacceptable. That's the Liberal Senator Erica Betts speaking to SBS yesterday. Just to be clear, um, this means athletes will go to the Winter Olympics in Beijing, but it's government officials that are being asked to consider whether they'll snub the Games like the US did. So Nine Newspapers is reporting no government officials will be making the trip from Australia to China for the Games, but the government's still considering whether diplomats in China will attend ceremonies. Yeah, so we don't actually have official word from the government on what they're doing. That's just what nine newspapers are getting from their sources. So we are waiting for confirmation what our government's going to do here. They're in a bit of a situation. The US have made a really strong stand. Um, We've had a fair bit of conflict with China, obviously, in the last couple of years. So it's going to be really interesting to see what our government actually does. And so just for a bit of context, it's a bid to send some kind of signal to China over its human rights abuses in Xinjiang and Hong Kong and the treatment of Chinese tennis player Peng Shui. Um, I think it's really interesting. Yesterday, upon hearing the US's decision, a Chinese official said, well, no one cares if politicians are calling for the boycott. (laughs) Nobody cares if you're there anyway, which is kind of funny because, I don't know, I suspect that may be a little bit true. Most people want to see the athletes, that's exactly. for sure. <laughs> that's right. But I think it, it will be embarrassing for China. As to the impact it makes, I'm really suspicious that this makes any difference. When We, we all went to the 2008 Games in China, the mm-hmm. Summer Olympics. That mm-hmm. was fine, apparently. Mm. We accept their investment and their trade. In fact, want more of it, as I mentioned yesterday. So I don't know what this really achieves. The presidents of the US and Russia met this morning via video amid global concerns Russia could be on the verge of invading its neighbour, the Ukraine. So as many as 90,000 Russian troops are reported to have massed on Russia's border with Ukraine, the US and Europe believe it could be a signal of an impending invasion. But Russia says it has no plans to invade, but has warned it won't accept Ukraine being allowed to join the US-Europe-NATO alliance. And so, Tom, this isn't a new conflict. The pro-Europe-Ukraine government, they've been fighting a war against pro-Russian separatists mm. near the country's border with Russia since 2014. And you know, That's that- when the MH17 went down over yes, that conflict. That's right. And in that time, more than 14,000 people have lost their lives in that seven-year conflict. 
Yeah, there's a long history of tension and violence there, so hopefully it's not uh, escalating into more here, but I think we're going to you know, watch this situation pretty closely. Doctors and nurses who spend several years working in remote and regional Australia will get their uni debts cleared under a new scheme from the federal government. The more remote you go, the more significant the practice incentive payment or the workforce incentive payment is. It is targeted because there is an acute shortage of general practitioners in the outer regional and remote areas. That's Regional Health Minister David Gillespie speaking to the ABC there. So doctors and nurses in areas deemed remote can have their study debts cleared, but only if they work 24 hours per week for half of the length of their degree. So that's for really remote areas. For rural and regional areas, medical practitioners will have to work the full length of their degree to get the same benefits. And this is just the latest effort to address chronic shortages in remote and rural regions. And figures from last year show that around 20% of Australia's rural population, they weren't able to see a GP because there wasn't one close by. Mm. A shocking 60% said they had no access to specialists in their region. Health authorities in New South Wales are urgently contacting around 140 people who are on a party cruise on Sydney Harbour over concerns it could be an Omicron super spreader event. Five people who attended the cruise over the weekend have tested positive for COVID. And authorities say at least two are likely to have the Omicron variant. Harbour Cruise is the perfect super spreader event. You're stuck on a boat. Didn't we learn last time from about <laughs> the, the cruises? The, the, the I'm surprised cruises. anybody went back on there. Well, yeah, there's all this like humid, bad weather in Sydney. Everyone's stuck inside. You're not out on the deck, you know, breathing the fresh air. You're just breathing the same air all over each other. But so far, the Omicron hasn't spread that far in Australia. 37 cases so far, which is good. I guess, compared to what it could be if it was as bad as a Delta wave. Meanwhile, in Victoria, the Ombudsman's ruled that their border exemption scheme was unjust and inhumane and called on the state government to publicly acknowledge the distress it's caused to so many affected people. This was just shocking. I mean, over the past several months, we've heard of these stories. We've heard of people unable to bury loved ones and be reunited with family. We heard the human side of this story, but now we have it in figures and it's just a shocking. The investigation revealed that of the 33,252 exemption applications between July and September, only 8% were granted. Yeah, so that means... There's over 30,000 people who weren't allowed to cross that border who needed to. That's why they applied for exemptions. That meant people missed important medical treatment and some were left effectively homeless, stuck on the other side of the border for months on end. And the ridiculous thing was there wasn't a a strong justification for that border even being closed between Mm. New South Wales and Victoria because there were cases, you know, in similar proportions on both sides. And a big development in a story, we did a briefing topic two weeks ago about the inventor of Bitcoin. Yeah, we have a ruling on this fascinating story now. A Florida court uh, ruled that Craig Wright, the Aussie who says he invented the blockchain currency, won't have to pay half of his massive stash of coins to his late business partner, David Kleiman. Kleiman's family was suing Wright for half of the $70 billion of Bitcoin controlled by Bitcoin inventor Satoshi Nakamoto. And that's a pseudonym Wright says is him. And so the jury found Wright doesn't owe Kleiman's family half of the coins. But it did find that Wright will have to pay $140 million so we were talking about $70 billion before, $140 million in compensation for a breach in intellectual property rights related to a company they worked on together. Now, I'd actually hope the court would rule that somehow Wright would have to prove that he was Nakamoto 
by showing he had access to the coins. Um, it's 1.1 million coins, $70 billion worth. It appears the court didn't do that. And so now the crypto community is still waiting to see if Wright's going to come good on his promise to prove he's the founder. And to do that, he'd have to move some of those coins. Yeah, right. All right, we'll catch you later, Antoinette. Um, announcement for you. Um, we got such a big response to our survey from you guys. Um, around 800 people got back to us, which was awesome. Another call out now, we're actually launching a newsletter next year. So the newsletter will basically give you lots of really interesting news updates, opinion pieces, trivia, and it won't just be a repeat of the podcast. There'll be a whole new product from the briefing team. We're actually hiring someone to work on this. It'll be all the things you want to read um, so you don't have to keep doing the scroll of doom straight to your inbox, keep you up to date with all the happenings on the briefing. We'd love for you to um, sign up for this newsletter that we'll be rolling out next year. Jump into our Instagram bio and the link is there for you to sign up. All right, Jan Fran and I are going to interview the guy who's trying to make commitment cool again. Pete Davis is an author and a Harvard graduate who's written a book called Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. Pete, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. Tell us about your key message. My key message is that even though you are told often to keep your options open, you should remember that the people that have the biggest impact on the world, that created everything that we hold precious today, and that in the end feel the most joy and serenity about life, are the ones who ignore that advice and instead of keeping their options open, commit to a particular thing, a place, a cause, a community, a person, a craft, an institution, the long haul heroes. When you say that we've been told to keep our options open, what do you mean by that? What's giving us those messages? As we're growing up, we're often told, pick the job that will allow you to secure the next job. Don't get too tied down to a person or a place because you never know what's around the corner. A lot of times it's don't speak your mind, don't talk about what you believe, don't go too out there for something because it might hurt your career. That's a message we're sending a lot of young people today. And meanwhile, you know, with technology, you know, you're swiping through thousands of people on dating apps, you're seeing the fear of missing out all the time while scrolling through your Instagram feed, telling you there's something else going on out there that could be better than what you're doing right now. This all adds up to this idea that we're stuck in what I call infinite browsing mode, mm. being in the hallway of life with a hundred open doors, too scared to close doors and enter and settle into a room. That's what I mean by the state of keeping our options open. Do you think that um, these dynamics kind of explain the increased reporting of anxiety? Because even you talking about scrolling infinitely on Instagram, I just had like a ping of like, oh, I, I had the feeling of knowing exactly what that's like. Do you think it's making us more anxious? Yeah, because the thing that gives us, what's the opposite of anxiety? It's like serenity. It's a feeling of purpose. It's a feeling of having community. It's a feeling of having depth. Those are the opposites of anxiety. And what are the things that give you that sense of purpose, that sense of community, that sense of depth? It's commitments to particular things. It's a feeling of 
I'm doing something particular right now. I'm in love with this particular person. I'm in this particular place and I'm going to stay here. I'm working on this cause. And even though there are other causes on the news, I got to keep my long walk going with this cause, or I got to keep my long walk going with this craft. And what happens when you are you know, not given those opportunities to attach or you're constantly distracted or tempted away, grass is always greener. You don't get those opportunities to make commitments. And as a result, you don't have the purpose and community and depth and joy that come with them. And what's the opposite of that? It's a lot of anxiety. But obviously, you're going to have to do some browsing before you make a commitment to something. You have to have some sense of what the possibilities are in life. So how do you know when the right moment is to commit to something? In the first chapter after the introduction of my book, I begin it with, I want to give browsing its due Mm. because I don't want this book to be never quit, never browse. That is not the message of it. What the message is, is that browsing is good for a period. Browsing gives us flexibility. It lets us be quote unquote chill so that we can explore things. It lets us find our authentic self. It lets us try things on and say, does this spark something inside of me? Does this feel right? It lets us have a lot of fun with seeing a lot of novelty. But the message that I think has resonated with a lot of folks is that after a while, these pleasures of browsing are haunted by pains. And when the pains Mm. overtake the pleasures, that's when it's time to start committing. So what are some of those pains? Flexibility is haunted by choice paralysis. It's nice to jump from thing to thing and stay chill, but then eventually after jumping from so many things, it becomes hard to choose anything. This is the Netflix issue, isn't it? This is me just trying to browse to find a film to watch on Netflix and I just can't do it. You know, it's like there's a hundred movies to choose from. You watch a few trailers, you read a few reviews and you find yourself waking up 30 minutes later and you haven't picked a movie and you're too tired to go to sleep. And there's deeper stuff too. It's finding your authentic self is nice. It's very important. But instead of just thinking about yourself and who your true self is, if you don't have times where you enter into relationship with something outside of yourself, something that's not a perfect fit for you, but something you're going to grow an organic relationship with a cause or person or community outside of yourself, you're going to feel a sense of isolation, you know, spiritual listlessness. And finally, All those novelties are fun for a while, but eventually you're going to start feeling shallowness if you're just skating on the surface of life. And you're going to miss out on the deepest novelties of all, which are the novelties that come at the other end of long hauls, being an expert in something, being an elder in a community, celebrating your 10th wedding anniversary, watching your kid graduate, really feeling like you're part of a place or part of a group. Those are the novelties you start craving when you're just chasing the hot new thing. Well, from all the options you have, it's the choices you make within that that really end up defining you. That's often how you actually connect with people because they've made similar choices. So as you say, if you're not really making those choices, you continue to browse. How can you connect with other people properly? Yeah, we have this thing that I call the fear of association. Mm. It's this fear that if we join up with anything, it'll threaten our identity or our reputation or our sense of security and comfort. I'm not really the type of person who does that, or it's not exactly the type of thing, or I like parts of it, but other parts seem not like a good fit for me. But the message I'm trying to send with this book is that you actually build your identity through your commitments. You become what you choose to do. You become 
what you choose to commit to. You actually find yourself through your commitments. You're not threatened by your commitments. And it's not just that you find yourself, it's that you find others. No one wants to make friends, but everyone wants old friends. No one wants to go to the first meeting where it's awkward and everyone's like has their name tag on and they're holding the cups and looking at their shoes. But everyone wants to go to the meeting 10 years down the road where you're all old friends and you've known each other and you're talking about all the memories. My whole message with this is we have to go through the valley of discomfort of community building and joining up with things and committing to things so that we can get to the other end of Mm. deeper comfort, deeper security, deeper community than we would ever have alone. See, I like the theory of this. For me, the practical is where I fall over because I want to be more committed to even something as small as watching a movie from start to end, which I have increasing trouble doing. So when I'm in that position, let's start small. Let's take the movie as an example. If I'm in that position, I want to commit to the whole thing. I'm struggling. How do I do it? Is there a thought that I should be thinking or a behavior that I should be enacting? We wrongly believe that it is the substance of the commitment, even something as small as a movie. Like It's the substance of the movie that's going to determine how good of a time we're going to have. And that's the only quality. We have to remember that it's actually the experience of committing to the movie and sitting through the story that is half of the enjoyment. So it's not like if you were given a totally random movie or totally random career or totally random spouse, to use an extreme example, that you would be happy. Substance is important. You should use some discernment. You should make some choices. You know, have preferences. That's fine. But don't think that that's the only thing. Know that it's the follow through after you've gotten over the hump of committing that is going to determine half the battle. So we have to just have that nudge to just dive in, give it 10 minutes, then commitment has its own momentum and suddenly you're in the movie and you're off to the races. I think part of it's also about accepting that it it might not be a great film or that you will be going through moments of discomfort watching it thinking this is not a great film, but that can be part of the experience as well. And discomfort can be a fulfilling part of any journey. Amen. One is that you are partially transformed by your relationship to it. So if you're constantly in analytical mode where you're like, was this a good film to watch? Should I have made this commitment? Or was I dumb to do this? Then you treat the bad moments as like extra painful because they're haunting you by your wrong choice. But if you really feel like I'm committed to this, I'm watching this movie, suddenly everything turns around And you experience that as like, oh, okay, I got through, I'm really grinding this one out or I'm getting through the quiet part or in more serious commitments, I'm going through the meetings or I'm going through the rough patch in my marriage, but it's all part of the process. And this is an important thing that I'm doing because I have this relationship of this is part of me. This is something I've committed to that changes it. And also it's really important to remember at the beginning of these choices to lower the stakes, you know, When I talk about commitments and dedicated the book, it's not like a billion-year contract. Mm. It's not exactly existential commitments. Probably the most existential commitment I talk about is like marriage. Usually you try to make it last for life. But most commitments, in the end, you can legally quit. You can move on. Sometimes things have life cycles. Some things should be seven years long or should be one year long. Once you can know that, that this isn't some existential commitment, that lowering the stakes can sometimes free you up to dive in and dip your toes in and see if you can get onto that conveyor belt of 
the commitment having its own momentum. Hey, Pete, is it not a fairly understandable reaction to the times we've been living in? I mean, if you think about the last 20 years, it's been an explosion of information and connectivity and the world has changed so much. So it seems perfectly natural that people would want to stay very alert to what else is changing throughout this period. Yeah, you know, I talk about in the book this idea from this philosopher, Zygmunt Bauman, called liquid modernity, which I call infinite browsing mode, but for everything in society. So it's not just that we remain like liquid in a state that can adapt to fit any future shape. I'm going to make sure that the way I'm acting now allows me to quickly move or quickly quit or quickly switch. It's also that all the institutions are melting down around us too, and they're not being loyal to us. So we shouldn't be duped by being loyal to the world if the world's not going to be loyal to us. But the message I'm trying to send with this book is that someone somewhere has to be the alternative to this liquefaction of the world. We want to be solid people. We want to have solid parts of the world that are things we can hold on to, that are things that can last a while, that are things that can have meaning and community and purpose and depth, even though that's not the dominant way the world works and that's not the dominant culture that people are acting in. There is a counterculture, I call it the counterculture of commitment, of solid people that are deciding to go against the grain and say, even though it might make more rational sense to not be committed to this neighborhood or not be committed to the kids in this town or or not be committed to this important cause fighting for climate change or racial justice or whatever cause you're fighting for, I'm going to be committed. I'm going to blaze that alternative path. I'm going to plant the seed in the desert and hope that a forest has grown out of that. Because everything we hold precious today is because someone did that in the past. And anything precious we want in the future has to be someone taking that radical act today of being countercultural and being a committed, solid person. And so this book is saying, be a little abnormal, be rebellious. This isn't a book to say, you know, how to go with the grain of our liquid world. It's about how to blaze an alternative path for solid people. That's what the challenge, and I think our people around us and our descendants will appreciate all the people who choose to take that path. That was Pete Davis. He's the author of Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. And Jan, I've got a hunch that the sort of skills he's talking about, which is kind of sifting through the crazy noise of this age we're living in and finding a path to commit to, a bit like we discussed with the author of Indistractable about finding traction and not being completely bamboozled by everything around us, that this is going to be one of the key and most important skills of our time. Mm, You mean a person that can live in this sort of liquid world but be able to Choose a path, make choices. Even if the choices aren't always right, then make other choices that steer them in a better direction, but to not just be treading water. Yep. Tomorrow on The Briefing, um, the Bitcoin trial in Florida. What happened to Craig Wright, the Aussie who claims to be the founder of Bitcoin? We'll bring you the key details from that case. Listener.